Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm one of your hosts, Lori Dickmeyer. I just finished speaking with Dr. Pang Yang Hui about his new book, Straight Rituals, China, Taiwan, and the United States in the Taiwan Strait Crises, 1954-1958. We spoke about his fortuitous access to PRC and ROC records, in addition to walking through some of the public events and tacit communication that happened among these three big powers in the 1950s. Uh, ultimately, Pang Yanghui explores the Taiwan Strait crises as a transition from tacit communication to tacit accommodation. Uh, we conclude the interview with a reflection on the broader significance of this project for today's world of politics and his upcoming projects. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. Today, we're talking to Dr. Pang Yanghui about his book, Straight Rituals, China, Taiwan, and the U.S. in the Taiwan Strait Crises, 1954 to 58. Uh, Yang welcome to the show. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. Uh, could you start us off by telling a little bit about your background? Yeah, um... Currently, I'm a lecturer at the Singapore University of Technology and Design, um, where I teach uh, some liberal arts uh, kind of uh, subjects. Uh, and uh, I also give my own electives, such as modern China, uh, world history, and, uh, and uh, various other subjects. Yeah. And could you tell us how you became interested in this topic, the Taiwan Strait Crises? How did you come to... Uh, write a book about it. Right. So um, the interest in it uh, started when I was doing my uh, master's research. I was doing on uh, President Nixon's uh, foreign policy with regards to North Vietnam. Uh, in particular, his uh, military operation, Operation Linebacker. So um, I did that and I finished it and uh, I was thinking about doing my PhD and then after that, but I sort of got sidetracked by the fact that uh, when I was reading the documents that I uh, found out, and also his memoirs, that uh, he was actually the vice president of uh, President Eisenhower. So that got me very intrigued, right? I started reading about his vice presidency. And uh, one thing got to another, and then I started reading more about his role in the Eisenhower administration. And um, so the interesting thing is um, before Eisenhower, uh, no, sorry, the first year of Eisenhower's administration, he actually sent uh, Nixon, his VP, all around the world, right? So this is, so we are talking about the 1950s, right? And um, so because Nixon had a kind of uh, odious reputation in terms of uh, Ray Bader and so on and so forth, um, so you would expect that Nixon, well, stereotypically, you know, being, I mean, he sounds like a redneck. <laughs> so um, the thing is, uh, from the transcripts uh, of 
when he had with uh, the world statesmen all around the world, uh, that did not turn out to be so. Uh, in particularly, what's even more interesting is uh, when he returned from his world tour to the National Security Council uh, back in Eisenhower's uh, administration, uh, when he was giving the debrief to both the CIA debriefers and also his colleagues in Eisenhower's cabinet, uh, you are really blown away and you begin to understand that uh, why is it possible for Nixon in 1972 to have a rapprochement with China? It's because this guy is not uh, as simplistic as what you think that he's just a rate beta and you know so on and so forth. Um, that this guy really had the world vision and it was formed as early as the Eisenhower administration when he was just a VP. Now, in American politics, as you know better than me, um, the VP, of course, uh, has very little political role, right? Uh, but Nixon managed to turn it around and uh, and it served sort of like a... Um, excuse me for the bad analogy, but it's like a PhD for him you know, in international politics. So that's how I uh, managed to uh, move on into my current research uh, on the time and stress crisis. Uh, so as I dig further into it, I become more and more interested in it. And that's how I started on this topic. Yeah. And one thing you mentioned in the introduction to your book, uh, that looking at uh, this topic that your book is w one of the few maybe that looks at sources in kind of a deep way from Taiwan, the U.S., and uh, from the PRC. So I'm wondering if you could introduce us a little bit to your source base. Yeah, no, no absolutely. Um, so uh, what's interesting is uh, in 2004, uh, the... Uh, PRC Foreign Ministry Archives uh, was sort of opened up in a tentative sort of way to absolutely outsiders, you know. Um, so in 2008, I managed to get a travel grant to go there uh, to take a look uh, and stay there for three months. Um, so, so this is absolutely uh, the... Uh, kind of uh, unprecedented because uh, we know that the PRC archives was never open to outsiders and that uh, those official kind of uh, Mao Zedong biography that was published officially by the, the government of PRC itself uh, were highly uh, kind of uh, controlled affairs whereby the documents, although it was cited in the biograph official biography, uh, those sources are nonetheless not available to outsiders. So, so this, when the PRC Foreign Ministry Archives was open in 2004, and I went there in 2008, uh, certainly there were a lot of interest in it. And uh, absolutely, when I went there, one is sort of uh, electrified, right? By the fact that you are looking at documents for the first time that has not been available for the general reading public for a very long time. Um, so... So that, that, that's one thing. Uh, uh, when I went there, uh, only around 60% of the documents are reviewed, as the archivist uh, told me. And they at that time, they had plans to further review this. 
uh, all the way until perhaps the Vietnam War. So I was very lucky then, I, I guess, uh, in choosing a topic that's in the 1950s because had I followed my uh, initial research, which was Nixon and the Vietnam War, you know, uh, documents will not be available at the time. So uh, I had a wheel of a time uh, looking at documents from PRC. There are some restrictions. Uh, I mean, number one, of course, there are only 60% of the documents available. So, uh, and also if there are high level documents, uh, if it involves the signature of Mao himself or Duan Lai, uh, you had to hand copy, right? So all this, of course, things uh, can restrict your, the speed that you can take down documents. Uh, other than that, uh, the other thing that was also interesting was in Taipei, whereby the, the, the archive Guo Shi Guan. So, um, when I was there, uh, documents that I think, uh, if I remember correctly, documents with regards to uh, Chiang Kai-shek himself and Chiang Jingguo, his son, uh, these documents, although they are sort of PDF, uh, and you can see on the screen, but nonetheless, you cannot print those documents. You Again, you have to uh, kind of uh, electronically kind of copy the documents. So that really slowed down, you know, I mean, uh, and, and I, I guess you know, because you, you yourself, you are a historian, right? So, um, and uh, so, but what is interesting is uh, 2008 was during the presidency of Chen Shui Bian. And Chen Shui Bian himself, uh, the fact that he was not from KMT Kuomintang, uh, or he had every uh, interest in uh, opening up the archives because uh, in the hope, I guess, uh, you know, digging up dirt on Kaisha himself. Um, but what's interesting is that whatever that had already been said about Chiang Kaisha uh, had been said and the opening of archives uh, added to the nuances, but not to, like, not any earth-shattering discoveries. Uh, but yeah. nonetheless, uh, it is it is very very uh, kind of uh, mind blowing because to see, uh, as I said in my book, Fan Kong Dalu, right, the retaking of mainland China. So you have all these plans and uh, how the uh, sort of the general staff of the ROC army wrote it up, and then you have Chiang Kai Shek's uh, sort of uh, commands at the side of. The documents and it's interesting because um, in 19th century for at least for Qing dynasty uh, if you send up a memorial to the emperor right the, and the I mean the, the emperor will sort of uh, write his commands at a site using vermilion ink right which is red in color uh, here I did the same thing you know uh, he write comments like approve not approve or deserve more consideration and so on and so forth. So it's kind of interesting. Um, the PRC documents, you don't see any of these notations. Uh, I, I believe all these important notations, documents that with these notations were not reviewed. All right. Uh, but for the ROC side, you can see, literally you can see, uh, I mean, as 
Tangasha uh, is reading the documents, you can see sort of internal debate he's having with the documents uh, authors itself. So that's so that's that for both the Chinese sources, which forms around seventy percent of my research. Uh, the last thirty percent is, of course, uh, Eisenhower's uh, Presidential Library in Abilene. Um, very pleasant place. Uh, in each of these places, uh, Taipei, Beijing, and Abilene, uh, I spent three months each, <laughs> so a total of nine months. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So um, in Abilene itself, um, documents. Uh, I mean, indeed. Uh, I mean, the, the standard of archival, retrieval, uh, you know, is, of course, it's, it's world-class, right? <laughs> Nothing could be said, you know? Um, in terms of uh, documentation, uh, sort of the National Security Council minutes were very, very important to me. Um, before I went, uh, of course, you have uh, all those commercially available uh, sort of microfilm National Security Council kind of reels that are published, you know, by companies such as Nexus, right? Uh, but the problem with going through those reels is that you can't really depend on them because those were done in the 1980s. And if you go through the reels, there will be a lot of blanks whereby they were said that uh, classified, classified, you know? So when I went there in 2008, uh, the, the the real documents, when you look at the real documents, uh, those are available. Those that previously classified documents are now declassified. And I asked for some FOIA documents myself. And uh, so, so yeah, so, uh, you know, this, uh, so this is, so this book is, uh, I'm able to write this book really because of the disfortunous Kind of a confluence of events whereby the three sources uh, are available at that point in time. So, um, so you you might find it very strange. Why did I say that? Why why is this fortunate? Because uh, as recent as two thousand one five, uh, the Wilson Center, which is of course the center that has all these core documents, right? Uh, they uh, contacted me. Uh, and I was I came to know about the gradual closing again of the PRC Foreign Ministry archives. Uh, if you just do a simple words Google word search, you find that a lot of uh, graduate students, in fact, have to change their topic midway because uh, they simply cannot get access to the documents the way I had in two thousand eight. So. Um, so that's why uh, I say this uh, fortunate for me. Yeah, that's really great that that worked out. Then, um, why don't we just jump straight into your second chapter? So this is where you uh, open up with talking about how this kind of hostile relationship involving the PRC in Taiwan and the U.S. emerges, um, kind of during this period, nineteen fifty to fifty four. So. And, and you talk about this leading up to the Geneva Conference in 1954. So I wonder if you could just uh, briefly walk through uh, the concerns of those three main powers during those years. Yeah. So, um, so, in, so the, the book itself, uh, what I have is uh, I have two chapters each. 
covering a kind of a major uh, concern. So chapter two and chapter three uh, actually uh, covers the concern of Geneva, uh, which is after the Korean War, and chapter four and five uh, covers the first Taiwan Street crisis. And then there's a break, chapter six. And chapter seven and eight covers the second Taiwan uh, Street crisis. So, uh, so in chapter two itself, uh, what's important is uh, what I try to draw for the readers as the origins and the making of the contents over the control of the time and trade. And uh, I sort of uh, kind of uh, noted that it's important to do with the major developments in the foreign relations of US PRC ROC from this period of time. So this sort of set up the scene for the Geneva conference in chapter three in itself. So um, so chapter so so chapter two is sort of like, you know, is uh, if I may be allowed to make a uh, sort of analogies like the Shakespearean play, right? <laughs> you set up the pieces <laughs> and then you set up a scene, what's the context? So that's really in chapter two. And of course the biggest uh, thing that the background of it all is of course uh, the, the war in Vietnam uh, whereby the French uh, yeah, doing very badly in, right? So, and then I go on to three, uh, whereby uh, I talk about several things that uh, in this book, uh, I, in particular, I talk about some cultural values, uh, I talk about uh, roles of ritualization, and uh, so, so, so this is these are not the common uh, things that diplomatic historians talk about, but I managed to talk about it more. Um, really, again, it's uh, linked to the fact that uh, this is only available because of the mid-level functionary documents that are available from the PRC itself, whereby they have all this. Uh, kind of discussion about how do they present themselves in Geneva, right? So, um, and then you have all this access to their thinking, and uh, it be then it becomes possible to write about it. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, so, in Geneva, what, what we have then in Chapter 3, right, after the setting up of all the scenes in Chapter 2, is that you find that China was able to have this what I call a cultural blitzkrieg, you know, uh, in combination with real politics. Uh, this this interlocking of cultural uh, kind of uh, display and uh, real politics in the conference itself. Um, so you have so you have China itself. Uh, they hired this almost like Chateau, which is close to, well, I guess uh, contemporary understanding is like uh, almost a small palace, you know, and they imported in a lot of cultural artifacts uh, to populate the place and they entertain people at the Chinese, uh, this place whereby uh, the Chinese were showcased to the world. So, so it might strike you as curious and like, why would the Chinese bother to do that? Well, that's because um, China, in the aftermath of the Korean War, was effectively a pariah, right? And that, so you have this 
monolithic stereotypical view of China being communist, you know, they almost, uh, they, they do not understand, you know, the finer qualities of culture and so on and so forth. So the Geneva Conference then became an avenue for the Chinese to showcase to the world. And you have uh, on the record uh, from the United States uh, documents and also from uh, the Chinese side, whereby the Americans were disgruntled about how how the, the Chinese were able to turn this into a propaganda kind of uh, fiesta, you know. Um, and then the Chinese did it effectively, right? Uh, Joe and I was on the record for telling his uh, subordinates that the entire conference must be coordinated. Uh, if you've read a chapter, it talks about Mei Lanfang, which is, of course, speaking opera. So this theatrical kind of connection with uh, real politics, I find it fascinating because in the in the occlusion of the, for example, the emissaries from Cambodia and Laos and even Burma with the Chinese, you find that uh, although they display kind of uh, this sort of cultural, you know, uh, they, for example, they screen the movie The Butterfly Lovers. And uh, but at the same time, on the other hand, the the Chinese themselves in, engage in intensive negotiation by the side, and so and when you read through transcripts, uh, what's what's amazing is that uh, you you find that countries that are in Cambodia, they would uh, the emissaries. All right, I mean from the name you cannot tell that these guys were actually ethnically Chinese. But from the transcript, they actually say something like, oh, you know, that PRC is like an elder brother, you know? And then, of course, the, the Chinese would do the perfunctionary thing, like, you know, waving it off, saying, oh, no, no, it's not a concern, you know, please don't concern yourself about that, you know. Uh, we are here to negotiate real things. For example, the, how, do, how do I and the Vietnam War, at least the first part. So in many parts here, we also know in the Geneva, uh, so so cultural parts, I mean, in Grant, Antonio Gramsci talked about cultural hegemony, right? So uh, here is displayed overtly, and you find that the Chinese were able to pressure the Vietnamese to literally uh, accept the partition of Vietnam. So this in itself uh, is the real politic part. So you have the cultural part, and then we have the real politic part. And uh, another aspect that's interesting in the newer chapter is the fact that uh, Peter Smith, which was uh, the director of CIA, all right, uh, he himself was there as under secretary of state. And um, uh, so previously he was director of CIA and then uh, his capacity during the Geneva was Undersecretary of State. Um, so Peter Smith performs this service of uh, sort of uh, what I call in my book, uh, Tacit Communication, uh, sort of engaged ambassador, all right, uh, in, in a sort of uh, communication, right? So. And then, clearly, uh, they are not supposed to shake hands. 
So Peter Smith then uh, grabbed hold of the Chinese ambassador's shirt sleeve and sort of like, all right, I'm not shaking a hand, but I'm shaking your shirt sleeve. <laughs> so establishing communication. Uh, they talk about, I mean, of course, a lot of uh, real content were like, uh, nothing significant was concluded. Uh, but that was the first step of the, uh, what I call tacit communication. And this in the part itself, uh, what is interesting is the Chinese ambassador himself, uh, right, uh, would actually mention this in his own memoir about how this is uh, important in the subsequent negotiation leading up to 1958 and also in Kennedy's time. So uh, then this itself then is uh, chapter Mm-hmm. Three. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think it's great that you're mentioning this point of tacit uh, communication because that's something that it goes throughout your book, right? That uh, this is uh, something that continues during the first Taiwan Strait crisis, the second and forward from there. So, uh, so let's let's go to chapter four, right? Uh, and then this chapter. This is four and five. Yeah, they go together, right? Since they're both about the first Taiwan Strait crisis. Um, and this is your reevaluation of what happens now that we have China launching this huge uh, or a massive artillery bombardment of two islands. Um, so why don't you take it from there? Tell us uh, what leads to this and how do... China, Taiwan, and the U.S. react following all this? So part of the um, what I'm trying to argue that was first started in the Geneva, this tacit communication, uh, was later on uh, continued in the first Taiwan Straits crisis, whereby uh, in Geneva and subsequently after Geneva, uh, Beijing had conveyed its political concerns about the Taiwan problem. And it's uh, peaceful intentions uh, in uh, multiplicity of ways to uh, a wide variety of uh, international contexts. Uh, Washington tried to do the same thing at the same time, all right, to counter this kind of uh, Chinese uh, uh, push. So they tried to use also the UN Security Council. Uh, they tried to pick up, you know, like, for example, Operation Oracle. Does supposedly proposed by the New Zealanders. Uh, we know it's not. Uh, it is actually a brainchild of the United States itself, but using another uh, country to talk about it, right? to engage what Beijing uh, as a, a form of communication with Beijing, because at that point in time, as I said, uh, Beijing was an international pariah, right? So they do not have ambassadors at each other's places, and this is the only way they can communicate with each other. Uh, so the thing, what's important to talk about is that despite the barrage, but despite the superficial so-called uh, on 13 March 55, no, 16 March 55, Eisenhower sort of uh, raised the anti by having a nuclear threat, um, what we do have here is, if you look at the documents, is that both sides display great flexibility, and they actually inched towards Bandung, right, the conference, 
with intention to tacitly resolve the crisis. And throughout all this, we have the person of the UN Secretary General, Hamas Jaw, uh, whereby uh, he, he tried to do like the honest broker and um, connected to both. And what's interesting is that, uh, so, so this tacit communication did not, uh, in, in no way in my book, I'm trying to say that it comes about naturally or, you know, it's preordained or something like that. But it's uh, actually a result of very hard work, right, on, on all parties. Uh, for example, in the United States themselves, they do not appreciate the efforts of Hamas Joe. Right, they find him uh, sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, like nosy Parker, right, poking his uh, nose into U.S. affairs. Although he is the U.N. Secretary General, uh, one funny episode regards to the Chinese was that Hamas Joe managed to corner one of the ambassadors, and uh, sort of. Um, uh, engaged in a kind of a monologue with the Chinese ambassador more than two hours. And uh, it was, so it was one of those very rare moments whereby you, it's actually funny because the Chinese side, uh, although they really appreciate the efforts of Hamas Joe, but the ambassador himself was uh, kind of overwhelmed by the the verbal assault of Hamas Joe because uh, he can go on and on on a monologue. So, and this was recorded in the minutes. And uh, this is, and what's even more ironic is that Hamas Jock caused this quiet diplomacy. So, <laughs> so it's uh, nothing. It's very far from being quiet. But uh, nonetheless, uh, both sides. Uh, so, P, uh, the PRC made a conciliatory gesture on twenty third April nineteen fifty five to sort of uh, resolve. The crisis uh, and paving the way for the Sino-US ambassador to be held in Geneva in August 1955. Um, what I find interesting in all this is that uh, you'll find this attempt, uh, both sides using signaling and various symbolic uh, things uh, to sort of signal the end of the crisis. And at the same time, you have the role of ROC, Taipei, uh, Taiwan, uh, whereby they were furiously pushing right, uh, for additional U.S. engagement. Right? So, um, so even though the two sides did not come to uh, blows at each other. Uh, the only uh, China basically uh, bombarded Humoy uh, and Matsu in September 1954, and subsequently in 1955, Jen, they took one of the islands, which is Yitangshan and Bashan Island. Uh, all this was not uh, kind of like, there was, again, quoting from Macbeth, it was full of sound and fury, but what is really lost is not really apparent, right? Uh, because the ROC himself, uh, not only did they gain the Mutual Defense Treaty on 2nd December 1954, they also gained the Formosa Resolution 29 Jan, 
by American promise to defend the offshore island. So you find uh, in this episode itself, ROC uh, Chang'e Shek in particular, uh, the the powers of uh, Chiang Kai-shek in high-level diplomacy and maneuvering, uh, as was stated in earlier books such as uh, by Barbara Touchman, like a book about Steelwell, steel right? Uh, all this is displayed here, right? And uh, he's very good uh, seizing opportunity to uh, advance Taiwan's uh, sort of... Uh, uh, position, right? You manage to get more aid, uh, treaties, even the Formosa resolution. Uh, so, so uh, this, so in, so all this, uh, so so what you have is that. So previous uh, writers, when they talk about Taiwan Strait crisis, they always talk about misperception. Uh, but what we, if you look at closer the documents, what you find then is uh, both sides very much have an appreciation. They are willing to take their time. That's why the crisis lasts from 54 to 55. To actually actively uh, filling out each other and resolving it. So, yeah, that's the time it's first time. Yeah, great. Uh, and your next part of your book discusses this pretty short period of time, a couple of years, uh, when there we don't have a crisis, right? It's the gap in between the first and uh, second Taiwan Strait crisis. And you kind of highlight uh, four main issues that you think contribute to or are relevant for um, Sino-U.S., Taiwan relations. So I was wondering if you could maybe pick one or two of those. So you talk about, obviously, you've mentioned these a little bit already, but Sino-US ambassadorial talks, that, that particular issue, ROC, PRC, secret back channels uh, during this period, uh, the May 1957 Taiwan riots, and then um, the ROC and its Fen Gong mission. So if you want to pick one or two of those uh, and talk about them. I'd love to hear about those. Yeah. So, um, so, so in the, the book, right? Uh, I talk about how uh, so this tacit communication then uh, then become accommodation in the ambassadorial uh, talks. Um, so, what we then have is this engagement, constant engagement in communication, uh, and we know that. If, if both parties, belligerents, uh, continue communicating with each other, uh, there's less likelihood for coming to blows with each other, right? At least uh, they, there is an avenue for talks. Uh, and the both sides uh, uh, engage in it. And uh, I, I find it uh, because if you're familiar with, for example, the Marshall, uh, General Marshall, for example, in uh, in, in during the Chinese Civil War in the earlier period, uh, was in China to negotiate between uh, the ROC and the PRC. Oh uh, no, sorry, the uh, KMT and the uh, Kuomintang. So during those times, uh, the, the communists always like to talk about uh, tan tan da da. That means uh, fighting while negotiating. 
And this was, of course, displayed during the Nevo. Uh, it's the same advice they advised the non-Vietnamese. And during this time, the ambassador talks was something like that. Right? It's like, uh, while we can engage in talks, we talk about it. If we can't, then we exchange a few blows. So, um, so this in itself, um, of course, the Chinese hoped to gain something, but they did not because the Americans, although they are willing to engage in, they keep the communication channels open, but they're not willing to go that far because they have their domestic constituents to care about, right? Because China lobby at the time was still very strong. So, of course, then there were inconclusive results at the end of 1957. So, thus, in this particular ambassador talks, we can see that tacit communication or so leading to tacit accommodation, while it is useful in keeping the communication channel open, it has its severe limitations. That means what it means is that it really can't resolve many things, all right? Uh, so, uh, so in itself, then it is interesting because uh, the Taiwanese themselves, right? They were filming, right, at the site, and uh, so they themselves also launched their so-called what they call secret channels. Right? Uh, so this in itself uh, is interesting because the uh, so-called the CIA itself uh, actually did a study uh, during Nixon's time of possible ROC and PRC back-channel communication. And the evidence that was from the CIA report was not conclusive. Uh, as in, uh, they didn't think that Chang Jing Guo, right, so, which is the son of Chang Kai-shek, would uh, kind of... Uh, engage in it in a very fundamental way, right? It's true, because the back channel is a kind of a reaction to this ambassadorial talks. So the the thing is, uh, ROC is saying, all right, you, if Washington is engaging Beijing in uh, Geneva talks, we can engage in our back channel talks with Beijing unilaterally. And this in itself, I find it interesting because um, if you look at it in a kind of a real politic kind of way, it's, it's difficult to explain, right? But if you look at a cultural kind of way, uh, it is easier to understand. I mean, uh, in fact, both sides constantly uses things like, oh, you know, we are brothers, uh, but, you know, but because of political differences and now we are fighting. Uh, then again, um, bank channel talks, right, did not really resolve anything, uh, but it just uh, sort of kept the communication channels open. Again, as I said, you know, tacit communication or tacit accommodation uh, has its limitations. Um, so, uh, in chapter, uh, this particular chapter, sustaining linkages, I talk about it. And in subsequently, chapter eight, I also talk about it. Um, both chapters, when I talk about back channels, uh, what Taipei had, it is always uh, Taipei is always very wary of how it may pan out. 
So nothing was very much promised uh, because at the same time, uh, one may ask why did the United States not detect this earlier? Uh, why was the CIA uh, so-called uh, study was only conducted during President Nixon's time? Right, because this thing happened in the fifties, right? Uh, well, the, the the point is, um, you have a country that is sort of in a supplicant position to the United States. So this country, Taiwan. Uh, in, in my book, I use the concept that was developed elsewhere by another historian. That is what you call the leverage of the weak. So he's able to portray himself as this, um, like this uh, sort of and political innocent, right? And the uh, United States went along, right? You know, uh, he's such a jolly good fellow or loyal, you know, anti-communist. So would never engage in back channels. So this in itself is like kind of a binder, right? Blinder uh, that the United States did not really catch on only until the 1970s. Uh, so, so uh, I mean, there are two other issues, uh, but I think in the interest of time, I'll move on. So, yeah, if we want to move on to now to the second Taiwan crisis that happens in uh 1958, the end of August, uh, it lasts a much shorter amount of time. So I was wondering if you could talk to us about why is this second crisis resolved uh, so quickly? So uh, so what, what, what you can see then, uh, what the changes the entire argument of this tacit communication, the tacit accommodation really comes to fruition when you look at a national security Council uh, kind of minutes uh, with uh, Dallas, uh, Eisenhower, and, and with their chief of staff. Um, so you find that both um, sides by this time, right, with the lessons in the ambassadorial period, with lessons of Geneva, with lessons of uh, first time Straits crisis. They know each other, sort of like they kind of uh, what they are capable of and what they really want. So um, both, so the same goes for the Chinese side, right? In fact, uh, Mao in his first time Straits crisis displayed remarkable restraint. Right, he gives instruction like to his frontline commanders, like uh, when you send barrages over the Taiwan Strait. And you make sure that none of the high explosive bombs fall onto the American ships. So the frontline commanders were, of course, uh, they were not amused by this kind of uh, instruction because, you know, uh, at least it's like interference, right, of the military commanders. But then Mao, you have uh, documents that say that he, whereby he says that you no, know, this is a political war. It's not really a military war. So then it lays out very clearly that bombardment is a symbolic kind of sign to display displeasure uh, in the first time of crisis over CETO, Service Asian uh, Treaty Organization, uh, with the fact that Geneva uh, sort 
sort of uh, what was gained for Vietnam. Uh, supposedly, they agreed at the end of Geneva to have uh, kind of uh, elections were not held to display the displeasure. So in the Taiwan Straits, second Taiwan Straits crisis, similarly, Mao wanted to send a signal, right? So, so this is the thing, is to send a signal, not really to conquer the offshore islands. So both, he was sending signals to two parties. Number one is to Khrushchev, who Mao thinks is interfering in Chinese politics. And the other party that he wants to send signal to is the Americans, right? Because the Americans, by that time, uh, equipped Taipei with Matador missiles, which is nuclear tip, right? So and uh, so so this in itself, he has to send a signal that uh, you know uh, this is um, not going to sit well with PRC, right? But nonetheless, once the the sort of uh, barrage was launched. At the offshore islands, even the ROC themselves, for, for example, they have reports from the front line, Tingmen, sending back Chiang Kai-shek that this barrage in itself, all right, as you can, uh, both from the documents that were sent from the front line to Chiang Kai-shek and also from evidence of Chiang Kai-shek's uh, diary itself, both indicated very clearly that the ROC knew that this was a symbolic barrage. It was not a precursor to a general invasion of the offshore islands. So, so all sites, even CIA reports, you know, they are very, very clear that it's a symbolic thing, right? And so it's because by this time, they are so clear about each other's intention, uh, I argue then they, this has then for tacit communi uh, communication, this has reached its peak whereby the accommodation is achieved with remarkable restraint and uh, very quickly, as you have just mentioned itself. Uh, Dallas himself detailed the experiences painfully gained in '55 as fundamental to the tacit accommodation reached in the aftermath of the crisis. So therefore, uh, I argue, armed with good intelligence, new experiences with Beijing's modus operandi, uh, Eisenhower at Bonds concluded the Taiwan Strait crisis will blow over, right? So, although in the National Security Council minutes, you find that you have all his chiefs talking about nuclear bombard, uh, nuclear bombing of various cities, Eisenhower quickly shut them down, right? Say, no, 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 you're not going to have that. Okay, so uh, this itself is very interesting in the sense that kind of uh, sensing of the enemy, right? This uh, And and that's why it was quickly wrapped up, and then uh, you have uh, the Warsaw negotiation going on very quickly to wrap things up. Yeah. Yeah, and in Chapter 8, uh, you talk about uh, now that, you know, basically this situation is being wrapped up, peace is in sight, that these three powers are reacting to that peace in some interesting ways. We have the U.S. and the PRC claiming credit for it. We have uh, Taiwan kind of going on to use it for uh, nation-building purposes. Could you talk a little bit about how they all go forward with the Taiwan Strait as kind of a useful element for themselves? Yeah. So there's this 
element of theatrical, right? So again, uh, I, I use a, perhaps not a very accurate analogy of, uh, again, the Shakespeare play, right? So um, you find that, uh, so in terms of uh, actual accomplishment, well, I guess if we look at a big picture that no nuclear strikes were initiated, then it's a huge achievement, right? Uh, but if we look at, are there any substantive things that were achieved? Like, for example, did we solve the two-China question? Of course not, right? Uh, that's why until today we have uh, we have uh, phase off right over the Taiwan Straits. So, uh, so it, it really depends on uh, what you're looking at. Uh, so interestingly. Uh, when I first sent the uh, book manuscript to the publisher and I had my two reviewers, one of the reviewers uh, mentioned that uh, I should sort of go back and talk about the, uh, what you call, because in the 50s, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's attempt to take back China is rhetorically Gong Da Lu. In the 60s, it became Guo Guang Ji Hua, whereby uh, I mentioned that on page 257, right? So I have a little section devoted to it, sort of like aftermath. Uh, you find that, uh, again, Chiang Kai-shek sort of ratcheted up the rhetoric, but uh, the United States did not bite. And this time around, uh, it is Jack Kennedy's time. And uh, he uses the tacit accommodation, all the back channels that were really established with China to deliver the message that we are not going to be engaged in a war over offshore islands, period. All right? Never mind what ROC said. So this, this itself was very interesting because the speed that was achieved was even shorter than the second Taiwan Straits crisis. So this is the in Jack Chinese time. It was a, so some authors talk about the third time crisis. Uh, I did not. So I sort of mentioned it uh, towards the end. So this in itself again uh, give credence to this attempts to build accommodation between belligerents. So uh, so I. I was glad that the reviewer suggested it, and I I did uh, more research, and I was able to write up a few pages on it on this uh, during the sixties. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, well, I think we might be wrapping up here in a second, but is there anything else you wanted to say about your book as a whole, or any kind of takeaway points? Yeah. Um, sort of uh, because. And this part, especially the theatrical part, I find it interesting and is totally relevant to nowadays. For example, we talk about the Trump administration, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you, you, every day you will be bombarded with uh, things, what is said about Trump, his foreign policy, and so forth. So forth. Uh, what's one interesting thing is, uh, towards the end of the second Taiwan Straits crisis, if you have read a chapter, both all sides declare victory, right? Like, oh, you know, we have done this. We have told the Chinese to back down. The Chinese have also said, you know, we told the Americans to back off. And the Taiwanese, of course, said, oh yeah, you know, it's all great. You no, know, Taiwan is still here, and we get more aid. You know, but what's important is that you find that today, if you look at Trump administration, uh, 
have his perennial declaration of victory, right? <laughs> that he were he has achieved victory in this, he has achieved victory in that. Uh, so you and you, you find that uh, this all this is uh, interesting because uh, then you find that uh, PRC by now uh, sort of sensing, right? Again, we we talk about ritualization, right? They have sense that Trumps uh, always need a victory, right? Mm -hmm. For him to declare mm -hmm. as a victory, whether substantively anything was achieved, it really doesn't matter because you know. Uh, midterm elections are coming up, you know, or presidential elections are coming up. What's more important is for the uh, the spin, right? So, uh, so that's, that's that's the interesting thing that I find about this study having relevance to even today how we look at uh, uh, international politics. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, well, Yangwei, we've taken a lot of your time up, but I'm sure our listeners are interested in what you're working on now. Could you tell us what that is? Yeah, so um, right now uh, I'm working on uh, sort of uh, the first thing that I'm working on is on uh, is a spin-off from this study, which is on the nuclear energy development and weapons development. Uh, obviously, it came from the fact that uh, Eisenhower was sort of threatened on 16 March 55. So I, I want to look at China's uh, reaction to it, especially uh, how the scientific establishment in China, in the person of uh, the scientist, uh, especially with regards to Qian Sanqiang, which is the father of Chinese nuclear development, uh, sort of like um, biographical approach um, uh, in the 50s he came back to China in the 60s yeah, he endured the cultural revolution and finally in the 80s when Ping Fan, right he was able to become the university president of Zhejiang University uh, uh, so so this in itself is tracing but at the same time uh, I was also looking at Taiwanese side how uh, how they also wanted to sort of uh, develop their nuclear capabilities and how, of course, Americans shut it down in 1987. So that's the, uh, potentially the, the second book project. Mm, yeah, Sounds great. Uh, well, thanks again, Yanghui, for being on the show. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. Um, goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Laurie Dickmeyer. Thank you for listening.